Now, a certain man called Christopher Hassel has got a lot to answer for. He's put together this blessed sermon series, and somehow he's done a deal with the office, so I get all the really nasty ones to look after. And tonight in our series of Guys and Gals of the Bible, we're looking at the life of a woman who later on was praised for her faith. I emphasise later on, because her life was a right old mess. Sarah was the wife of the great patriarch Abraham. And the first thing to note as we look at this particular uh, gal of the Bible is that Sarah was no angel. The Bible tells us the story of God's people, warts and all. Now, I think there's a couple of things I want to say, and after this you can fall asleep. The first thing I want to say is that the church is having to learn that people come to faith and go on a journey with God in a different way to the church used to expect and would like. People normally come along here, or to this and any church, and find community. They don't find community, they don't stay. They're looking for community and relationship. When they've done that, some of them will start to believe in Jesus. And we see that happening here. And only then will the mess of their lives start to get cleared up. So we like to think, tell somebody about Jesus, they believe, and all of a sudden everything's fantastic. Don't work like that. And I think that's really important as we go through the life of Sarah. But as we go through the life of Sarah, I want you to understand something. God works in the mess of her life. But he expects change. And I'm going to tell you the story tonight of a woman whose life was a mess. And it took an awful lot of sorting out. And the bits that she didn't allow God to sort out meant that she suffered greatly. Okay then. So the thing you need to know about uh, Sarah is it's impossible not to notice that she behaved badly. Now there's nothing sexist in what I'm about to say, but listen in. She could throw fits and tantrums. She knew how to be manipulative. She could be mean. She could be impatient, temperamental and conniving. She could be cantankerous and cruel. She could be flighty and pouty. She could be jealous and erratic. She could be unreasonable and a whiner. She could be a complainer and a nag. She was married to Abraham. By no means was she always the perfect model of a godly person. And apart from that, she was absolutely fine. And yet for all the scripture records her several times later on as a woman of enduring faith. There's a big list in Hebrews chapter 11. She's in there. Something must have happened. Oh, and the other thing to say to you is, she was known as a stunningly, stunningly beautiful young woman. But from the time she became Abraham's wife, Sarah desired one thing above all others, and that was to have children. But she was barren, is the language they used then. And throughout her normal childbearing years, having a child was impossible. In fact, that is practically the first thing Scripture mentions about her. 
she was barren. It became a defining feature. And some while ago, I preached on uh, the notion of how have you been named? What names and labels have people placed on you that have defined you and limited you? She was barren. He was no good. She was rubbish. Do you get the drift? And those things need lifting off us because they stop us from becoming what God wants for us. Anyway, after recording that Abraham took her as his wife in Genesis 11, verse 30 says, But Sarai was barren. And she had no child. She was obviously tortured by her childlessness. And every recorded episode of ill temper or strife in her household was related to her frustration about her own barrenness. It ate at her for decades. She spent years in the grip of frustration and depression because of it. So badly did she want her husband to have an heir that she concocted a scheme that was immoral, unrighteous and utterly foolish. She rashly persuaded Abraham to take the housemaid Hagar as his concubine. And out of that came the issue of Ishmael. Predictably, the consequences of such a ploy nearly tore her life apart and seemed to leave a lasting scar on her entire personality. Her bitterness seethed for 13 years and she finally insisted that Abraham throw the other woman out along with the child that he'd fathered by her. Sarah's faults are obvious enough. She was certainly fallen. Her faith at times wavered. Her own heart sometimes led her astray. And those shortcomings were conspicuous and undeniable. And if those things were all we knew about Sarah, we might be tempted to write her off. The sorry tale is captured in part in chapters 16 and 21. So we've had part of the reading, but it's only part of the story. Fortunately, if you're depressed, there's a bit more to go. There was much more to Sarah than all of that. She had important strengths as well as glaring weaknesses. Yes, she wavered and yes, she sinned. But Sarah's life became one actually characterised by humility, by meekness, by hospitality, by faithfulness, by deep affection for a husband, and eventually a sincere love toward God, and a hope that never died. She got lots wrong, but God was on her case. One of the key lessons we learn from Sarah is that God can be found in the messiness of life and the messiness of my life and yours. The mess is created by circumstance, misfortune and sometimes ourselves. God isn't the cause, but he does engage with us through these dark, disappointing and difficult times. She got lots wrong, I said, but God was on her case. 
Do you need to hear that tonight? That even if you've got something terribly wrong, God is there right alongside you. He doesn't want to leave you in a mess. He doesn't want you to stay in a mess. But if you will walk with him, he will take you to a new place. If you don't, it could get very difficult. And one of the key lessons we learn from Sarah is that God wants to come alongside and transform us. Yet one of the challenges of such an experience is that we can feel, in the midst of all of that, deeply confused, frustrated and disappointment with God. And I want to speak now about the whole area of being disappointed with God. It was the Christian author Philip Yancey who wrote a book by that title. And Yancey has a great gift for expressing the knotty issues of faith. And in Disappointment with God, he poses three questions that Christians, if we're honest, uh, wonder about but seldom ask aloud. Is God unfair? You ever thought that? Is God unfair? Why is he silent? Why, when you need him, does heaven sometimes feel like brass? And is he hidden? And this insightful and deeply personal book points to the odd disparity between our picture of God and the realities we sometimes live with. Are you in that place tonight where you think, God, where on earth are you? Why, if God is so hungry for relationship with us, does he at times seem so distant? And why, if God cares for us, do bad things happen? And what can we expect from God after all? I want to say to you that I promise you there are lots of people in our church with those questions ever present in their life. And this should be a place where people can come with all their mess and all their questions, not just to be left there, but to experience tenderness and compassion and transforming love. And Yancey manages to avoid being trite while pointing us through and beyond life's disappointments and the cynicism they breed to a stronger, wiser faith and a confidence that God truly is loving and a thirst to reach not just for what God gives, but for who God is. There are times when we need to stop asking God for something and enjoy God for who he is. What I think is more helpful in Yancey's book is where he moves away from trying to give some answers to those questions to dealing with how they impact our heart. How as a Christian we can be so worn down by our griefs and our pains and our sorrows that our picture of God becomes wholly distorted and our relationship with him becomes damaged. 
answers, even when they are true, can leave the heart cold and grieving. Disappointment is something we all deal with at some point in our lives. We all want certain things from life. And sometimes we get them, and sometimes we don't. Feeling disappointment is perfectly normal, but we have to be careful how we deal with it. Sarah got in a right old mess. Feeling disappointment is not a sin. So as a Christian, don't wrap it up and be pretending that everything's okay. We all have expectations of others and of ourselves, but sometimes those expectations are not fulfilled. It is what we do with that disappointment that can lead us into trouble or into health. Disappointment can build up into anger if we let it. And when we get too angry, we become blind to God. We stop turning to him and eventually we can just walk away from the life of faith. Disappointment is a valid feeling, but like any negative feeling, we have to deal with it appropriately. So in order to avoid allowing disappointment to fester, there are things we can do to deal with the feeling before it festers and causes us real problems. Number one, admit you are disappointed. That's why Yancey wrote the book. You're allowed to say it. God, I feel hacked off with you. Hiding the disappointment from everyone keeps your thoughts and feelings bouncing around your head and it hurts. Bringing, it says here, confessing your feelings to others, not as a sin, but as a need, can just help to free you from that cycle and begin to set you free. Seek then, if this has been your situation, to forgive those who disappoint you. Forgiveness, I spoke to someone this past week on this matter, is one of the hardest things to give sometimes. But it also is the key to being set free. And don't be rash in trying to fix things. My wife says to me, John, I don't need an answer. I just need you to listen. Sometimes we try to fix stuff, particularly blokes, so the ladies tell me, particularly blokes. Sometimes being listened to and cared for and being tender is all that's needed. A quick fix can lead to further disappointment. And here I want to turn this on its head and relate it to us as a church. There are times when people express profound disappointment with Aldridge Parish Church, with its leaders, with its members, and everything else. And a quick fix won't work, sometimes called a technical fix. And sometimes God's church needs to say, there's something wrong here, and what part am I playing in it that we might lead to renewal and restoration? And ultimately turning it over to God. And even though we're Christian and supposed to always rely on God, I don't. And I guess you don't either. Even when it's difficult, try to let go of situations and give the control to God. Now Sarah would have faced all of these and they helped to understand how she was for much of her life. 
Our reading in chapter 17 offers a turning point. Sarai gets a mention and is renamed Sarah, while God promises that she will bear a son. So at the time when all this happened, Abraham fell on his face and laughed, for the pair of them were frankly past it. But there was more going on here than the promise of a child. This was the fulfilling, or the means to fulfilling, a covenant. Not all stories end like this one. Sometimes our disappointments stay a disappointment, and we learn to live with them. But in this one, God had a bigger purpose, and here destiny was at stake. The line of the promised child, who would be named Isaac, was the line which centuries later would give birth to the Messiah, the Christ. And the story of how that was fulfilled was another mess as well. But God has a way of dealing with the messes of human history and still speaking to his people. Chapter 21 tells us of an outcome as crazy as the promise that Jesus would be raised from the dead. I'm going to read that passage of scripture, chapter 21, and verses 1 to 5. So if you've got it handy. So I've whistled through the whole story and see where we get on now. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham, let's hope here guys, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now, to our modern sensibilities, this whole story sounds so implausible that we feel compelled to explain it away. Yet what is at work here in Sarah is the unfolding of more than a happy ending, but the fulfilling of a covenant promise. Seen through the eyes of the gift of another son, that son being Jesus, we are seeing here a story of incredible grace and mercy. Everything I listed about this woman in negative terms was absolutely true for most of her life. And yet she came around and God worked on her case and she was transformed. And the work in Sarah and the work in her son and the work in Jesus the son who came by him is an incredible story of grace and mercy. The gospel of Christ seems crazy madness that God would take on human life and live and die to restore us to the heavenly father. If you were God, why would you do it? It seems madness that a holy God could so love those who turn on him that he comes to shoulder the world's sin. He comes to offer crazy love, to, establishment, to establish a covenant family we call the new Israel. And that is you and me, the church. It is absolutely madness on the part of God that he's besotted with every single person in this building today. 
And some of us need to know that afresh. It seems absolutely crazy that such a God would entrust the good news of his love to a bunch of twelve frightened no-hopers called apostles. But he did, and those followers became at Pentecost the means of delivering God's big story to the world. And just as Sarah had played her part in the very beginning, he took twelve weak men and their friends and through them brought the gospel to all the world. It is Pentecost next week. Some Christians like to remember at Pentecost the gift of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely right. Some people like to remember the birth of the church. Absolutely right. Some people like to remember, remember the huge harvest of those who came to faith. And those of you who are here when I talk about my experience of being in Singapore, I saw there the impact of a new Pentecost, 20, 30 years before, where not only was the church led by men whose lives were turned upside down by the Holy Spirit, they not only entered the fullness of charismatic renewal, they are to this day a deeply missional church in a Muslim nation. God give us the same Pentecost he gave them. It seems absolutely crazy, but the same God has his eye on you and me as the means of sharing his love with the world. The truth is, he has got no other plan. Your five friends are the people God has laid in your pathway. Not to say, wouldn't it be nice if they became Christians, but it probably doesn't matter if they don't. God have mercy. God has put those people across your path. That instead of living lives that are messed up, they may find the freedom that Christ brings. This week alone, I have with others witnessed the beauty and the humbling truth that the crazy gospel of love continues to pull people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We were praying for people at Alpha on Wednesday night. These people are better at it than me. But we got away at half ten. I know there were three who came to faith there. And you know what I learned from the people who said, we already know Jesus. This is what they said. We came here for reason ABC. And when we came here, we got more than we bargained for. And we came to Jesus. We came. We belonged. We came to believe. And yes, our lives are still a mess. And our families' lives are still a mess. But God's working on our case. I witnessed to someone midweek who spoke of how grief had for them blocked out all thoughts of God. And after a little pastoral conversation, they opened themselves to the possibility of faith once more being recovered. Folks, this week, just ask God each day to make you sensitive to the promptings of his Holy Spirit. And see if you're not set up here in the future, testifying to God using you to witness in a way that leads someone like Sarah, but in the 21st century, to come to the living God and to know him afresh for the first time.
Let's be still for a few moments.